morning, I'd like to introduce you to a portion of God's Word that, when violated, produces virtually every type of conflict. And we're going to be focusing, as Jason alluded to, on marriage conflict. When couples have serious difficulty resolving conflicts, they come in for counseling. I know before I ever interview them that at least one of them is in violation of this passage of Scripture. So let's read the passage together. And before we do, let me just uh, mention that half of our church is single. So for those of you who are single and want to get married, this is the best premarital counseling advice I can give you in 42 minutes. For those of you who are single, unmarried, and are not necessarily interested in getting married in the foreseeable future, the next few minutes will help you develop the kind of character traits that you need to be a good conflict resolver. There are four qualities in this passage, especially in verse 2, we're going to highlight today. Verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to or making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, the big uh, injunction, the big imperative here, the command is to, is to make every effort to get along with others. But in verse 2, we have the four most important prerequisite qualities to be a good conflict resolver. So to the extent that you've got these qualities going on in your life, you'll be a good conflict resolver. But to the extent that you, in fact, don't have them, but have the antitheses of these things, for example, you're proud, or you're uh, sinfully angry, or impatient, or forbearance, forget about it in terms of your ability to be a good conflict resolver. And we're going to be looking not only at the positive qualities, but also at the negative alternatives. Okay, the first quality is humility. Now, what do you suppose the corresponding character flaw to humility is that is kind of a showstopper when I'm counseling people? Pride. Good. Yeah, I want this to be an interactive sermon, okay? In fact, it's kind of an interactive infomercial because in addition to being a sermon, it'll give you a taste of the conflict resolution course that's coming up on 21st of September. Okay, pride is manifested in many ways in marriage. The Bible says only by pride comes contention. For example, the biggest way it's, it's manifested is when two people don't acknowledge their sin. I mean, in marriage, in Christian marriage, we have to talk to our spouses about the patterns of sin in their life. And when that happens, the, the appropriate response is to acknowledge it, to say, you're right, honey, or I was wrong, please forgive me. But a proud person will not acknowledge his fault, and that's a problem. When I do marriage counseling, one of the things I typically have the couples do in the first session as a homework assignment is to make a list of the specific ways they've sinned against each other. That's a small list. 25, 30, 40, 50 items. I actually have a cheat sheet of over 100 items. They just kind of go through and check off the ways they've sinned against each other. 
And then um, I also give them uh, some material on forgiveness because in the second session, the husband is going to read his list of failures to his wife and ask her forgiveness, and hopefully she'll forgive him. She'll read her list of failures to her husband, ask his forgiveness, and hopefully he will forgive her. And then we switch lists, and just in case the husband forgot to identify some ways he sinned, the wife gets to add to his list, 51, 52, 98, 99. But the whole, and then we prioritize the list. So then the wife prioritizes the husband's issues, things she wants to see him work on to be a better husband. The, wife, the husband prioritizes the wife's issues. But the whole thing begins with them acknowledging their sin to each other. Pride is also manifested through a critical spirit. I mean, some people are just really, really critical. My mother never left the dishes in the sink overnight. Why don't you ask your mother how to cook this pasta the right way, the way it's supposed to be, like al dente? Pride is manifested by making sarcastic comments and questions. So you really think that outfit makes you look good? Are you really going to wear that? Why don't you get a real job? What, do I look like the maid or something? True story, in my first year of counseling south of town, I got a telephone call from this woman who uh, told me that her husband had just called her an angel. I said, that's great. She said, not really. I said, what do you mean? She said, he told me that I was always up in the air harping about something. Pride is manifested by condescending public remarks. My wife treats me like deity, a husband tells his friend. Every evening for supper, I'm presented with burnt offerings. Pride is manifested by a derogatory tone of voice or actions. Yes, dear. I mean, even in terms of endearance. Yes, dear. Okay, sweetheart. And then there's name-calling Grouchy, grumpy, dingbat, moron, clumsy, wimpy, lazy, meathead, whatever. And also our body language. Again, years ago, one of my first counseling uh, sessions, I was counseling this couple, and the guy was like really, really eccentric. He just put everything into it. You know, like he spoke with great passion. Very expressive. And so... I'm trying to understand him, and out of the corner of my eye, I notice his wife is over there mocking him, making all kinds of faces. So there's all kinds of ways that we can criticize others, and it's usually a manifestation of pride. Pride is manifested in many women who refuse to follow their husband's lead. I will not have this man to rule over me. And pride is manifested by many men who abuse the headship that God has given them over their wives. God, brothers, God didn't give you the responsibility to lead your family so that you could execute your own personal agenda. He gave it to you so that you could glorify the Lord and so that you could lead your family with humility in service to them. So if you want a biblical marriage... If you are unmarried and want to prepare to have a biblical marriage, the best thing I can recommend is for you to clothe yourself with humility. God, this passage occurs like 
three or four times, God resists in the Bible, resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the way it works is either we humble ourselves or what? God humbles us. Pride is the most serious of all sins, and it carries the swiftest judgment of God. So we have to take it seriously. The sin of pride is like the AIDS, the acquired immune deficiency syndrome of the soul. When a person develop AIDS, develops AIDS, it's sort of like a cataract grows over the autoimmune system so that the autoimmune system cannot see and consequently attack the microorganisms that God designed it to attack. It blinds us, and that's what pride does for us. By the way, y'all can um, pray for me. This, uh, this Friday, I have to have cataract surgery on my uh, left eye. So they're going to basically take a laser beam and shatter my lens and then suck it out and then replace it with a plastic one. Now, there's probably a really good sermon illustration about that, about putting off pride and clothing yourself with humility, but you'll have to do that on your own because I don't have time. Pride blinds you not only to itself, but to every other sin tucked away in the recesses of your heart. It causes you to hate correction and reproof. It hides your sin from you. It justifies your sin. It excuses you your sin and it keeps you from repenting of your sin. It deceives you into thinking that you're spiritually well when the truth is you have a deadly cancer and are in desperate need of treatment. Listen to Richard Baxter, the prolific Puritan writer, describe the pathology of this horrible plague of the soul. Pride is a deep-rooted and self-preserving sin and therefore is harder to be killed or rooted up than other sins. It hinders the discovery of itself. It will not allow the sinner to see his pride when he is reproved, neither will it allow him to confess it if he sees it, nor to loathe himself and forsake it, even when he recognizes all of the evidences of pride in others, he will not see it in himself. When he fears himself, despising reproof, and knows that this is a sign of pride in others, yet he will not see it in himself. And if you would go about to reprove him of this or other faults, you shall feel that you are handling a wasp or an adder. Yet when he is spitting the venom of pride against the reprover, he does not perceive that he is proud. This venom is a part of his nature and therefore is not felt as harmful or poisonous. So what is humility? Fundamentally, humility is realizing that God and others are responsible for the achievements in my life. For by the grace which was given to me, Paul says in Romans 12, I say to every one who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has given to every man the portion of faith or the portion of whatever you want to boast about, whatever you want to take credit for. What do you have, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, that you have not received? And the answer is nothing, nada, nienta. Why? Because God has given you everything. And then he goes on to say, well, if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you haven't received it? 
Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. What do you have that hasn't been given to you by God, directly or indirectly through other people? And what do you want to take credit for? Your wisdom, your good looks, your ministry and gifts, your education, your success, your athletic ability, your earning power, your family heritage, the honor of your profession, your children. What? What do you have that you have not received? Nothing. Why did the Lord give you these things? So that you could use them for your own selfish purposes, to consume them upon your lust, or so that you could use them for his glory and the benefit of others. Second quality, gentleness. If gentleness is the positive quality, what is the deficiency that uh, shows up in the lives of people who struggle to get along with their spouses or parents or kids or bosses or whatever? Harshness or anger, sinful anger. What's the greatest cause of uh, conflict in marriage? Years ago when I first started counseling, I was taught, well, it really has to do with our expectations. We expect things and then those expectations are not met, we get angry. And there's a lot of truth in that. There's actually a better way to look at it, which I'll explain in a moment. But each of us goes into marriage with different expectations. And when these are not met, we become disappointed, if not angry. The Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If I were to give you 10 minutes to come up with as many expectations that you might have for marriage, for your spouse, or for those of you who are hopeful, for your future spouse, give you 10 minutes, come up with a list of all things you're expecting, as many things as you can come up with in 10 minutes, how many things would be on your list? Typically, when I give couples weeks to do this, they'll come back with a list of eight or 10 or 12, maybe 14 at the, at the outset. So I'll look at the list and I'll say, this is a good list. But um, I think you may have forgotten something. Oh, really? Okay. Well, maybe not. Let me just give you a few other things that some people expect. And if you're not expecting them, then just leave them off your list. If you're expecting them, you can put them on your list. Possible expectations for wives. Ladies, do you expect your husband to work on a regular basis? Do you expect him to bathe regularly? To compliment you frequently? Do you expect him to tell you that he loves you often? Do you expect him to be faithful to you? To tell you the truth? Do you expect your husband to have a daily quiet time? To be a spiritual leader? Do you expect him to practice good table manners? Do you expect him to remember your birthday and anniversary? Do you expect him to spend time with you? Do you expect him to ask your opinion about major decisions? Do you expect your husband to give you the things you want without your having to tell him about them? Now the point is, how are you going to respond when these expectations are not met? If you're gentle, you'll respond one way. If you're not gentle, you might respond in anger. I don't suppose you'd be interested in hearing some of the expectations for the, uh, of the husbands for the wives, right? Yes? Kaylee says, yes. Okay. Gentlemen, do you expect your wife to keep the house relatively clean? Do you expect her to have a daily quiet time? Do you expect her to forgive you when you sin against her? 
Do you expect her to greet you at the door with a lingering kiss? Do you expect your wife to spend as much time on her appearance after marriage as she did before? Do you expect your wife to cook with variety? Do you expect her to get up with you in the morning to encourage you when you're down? Do you expect your wife not to give you bad news before dinner, not to nag? Do you expect your wife to age slower than you do? And again, the point is, how are you going to respond if these expectations are not met? Now, as I said a moment ago, the issue is not so much expectation, but it has to do with our idolatrous desires. Gentleness is not allowing any desire to become so deep-rooted that it produces anger, either in an attempt to attain that desire or as a result of not being able to attain it. In James chapter 4, James asks and answers his own question. He says, what is the source of these conflicts? They were having so many conflicts with each other, it actually uses the word battles and wars. And then he answers the question, is not the source of these conflicts your desires that are at war in your member? Members. Well, I mean, the word desire usually means a bad desire, but there are some places where it's actually used to speak of normal, natural desires. And so we can have a good desire for something. All I want is for my husband to talk to me. What's wrong with that? All I want is my kids to obey me. All I want is my wife to talk to me with respect. What's wrong with that? But if you want that good thing so much that you're willing to sin in order to get it or sin because you can't have it, at that moment, your desire for whatever it is is sinful. Not because the Bible says you shall not want your kids to obey or your wife to respect you, but because at that moment, you wanted that good thing so much that you were either willing to sin in order to get it or sin by getting angry because it wasn't given to you. God has given us the ability to delight in anything that we choose. Calvin said that the heart is a forge, or we would use the word factory, of idols. We have the ability to delight in anything and consequently to, to turn any desire, anything, into an idolatrous desire. And one of the things that's really interesting is to go through the Bible and look up the word love. We think of love is a good thing. Well, love is not always a good thing. I mean, is it good to love money? Is it good? I mean, you can use money, you can enjoy money, but to love money, right? Is it, is it good to love the approval of others more than the approval of men? Is it good to love pleasure? I mean, it's not a sin to play football or basketball or golf, but if you love these things so much, again, that you're willing to sin in order to get them or sin because you can't have them, you're in trouble. Is it wrong to enjoy food? Absolutely not. Right? But the Bible says, he who loves wine will be a poor man. He who loves oil will not be rich. Is it wrong to enjoy sleep? Certainly not. But yet the Bible says, do not love sleep or you will come to poverty. Bottom line, sinful anger is God's built-in smoke alarm or smoke detector that lets us know that we're coveting something at the point of idolatry. Why do I get angry? Maybe there's something I want, and it may be a good thing, but do I want it too much? That's the question to ask yourself. On the other hand, gentleness is knowing how to avoid sinful anger and to direct righteous anger towards the anger-producing problems in your life. Anger appears over 500 times in the Bible. Man's anger, God's anger, like forget about it, like over 1,000 times. 
But most of the anger, man's anger in the Bible, is the sinful variety, but there are a few times when you have the righteous anger. So let's think about that for a second. Why did God give us the ability to get angry, right? There's a problem in our life. Something happens, <clears throat> our, our adrenal glands start releasing all this adrenaline, and now we are ready for action, to fight or to run away, fight or flight, as they say, right? Well, why is that? Well, because God wants us to use that anger to attack, to address the problem. But what, what do we do? There are two sinful extremes that we have. Sometimes when there's a problem in our life and we are angry, let's just say righteously angry, what starts out as righteous anger turns into sinful anger because we clam up, we sulk, or we pout, or we withdraw, or give the other person the cold shoulder, which is essentially an act of vengeance. I can't believe you did this. How many times have I told you not to do this, but you don't get it, you don't have a clue. So the only thing I know to do is to give you a taste of your own medicine, and maybe in a day or two, in a week or two, when I think you have an inkling of how much it bugs me that you do that, maybe I'll start talking to you again. The other extreme is Ventilating, right? A fool gives full vent to his anger. It's exploding. It's getting sinfully angry. It's detonating yourself on the other person. It's using bad language. It's raising your voice. Kids, they'll, they'll throw things and hit things and bite and kick and scream. Both of these are sinful responses to anger. And when you clam up, it's like you're swallowing the dart that God gave you to throw at the problem. And when you blow up, you're throwing the dart at the other person. God wants us to learn how to get that anger under the Spirit's control as Christians and direct the anger towards the problem. I just can't control my anger. Okay? Remember the last time you and your spouse had a, I mean, you were in like the worst, the middle of the worst conflict you've had. It hadn't been this bad in years. And you're fuming and all of a sudden the telephone rings. Hello? Oh, hi, Mrs. Neighborhood Gossip. How are you today? You can control your anger more than you realize. Third quality is patience. Now, patience is the quality we're supposed to put on. What's the sin that messes up our ability to resolve conflicts? It's impatience. When was the last time you took an IQ test? I don't mean an intelligence quotient test. I mean an impatience quotient test. In the book, I've got an example of a test. I can't, I don't have time to read all of the criteria, but let me give you a sampling of what's on the IQ test. And so I'd like you to evaluate yourself about the frequency that these things happen. Do these things happen frequently, always, frequently, sometimes, seldom, and never, hardly ever? When another motorist cuts me off as I'm driving my automobile, I become so annoyed that I say something critical, unkind, or nasty about that person. How often does that happen to you? When I want to leave for an appointment on time and others by their procrastination hinder me from doing so, I become restless and fuss at those who are slowing me down. 
When someone on whom I've been waiting 20 or 30 minutes shows up late and doesn't apologize, I take it personally and assume that he or she does not think I'm important. When someone hurts or offends me, I write that person off, having little or no desire for reconciliation. When others are ungrateful for the things that I've done for them, I think about no longer doing those things for which they've been ungrateful. Here's the short test. When I'm tired or sick, I become irritable, grumpy, and short-tempered. When God does not execute his judgment on the unrepentant as quickly as I think he should, it really troubles me and I question his justice. Patience is the ability to accept a difficult situation from the Lord without accusing him of wrongdoing or giving him a deadline to remove it. I don't know if you're able to pick up on it, but the majority of those things on that little IQ inventory have to do with little mini trials. We think we're patients because we can handle the big trials really, really well. But how do we handle the mini trials? You know, like you're in the car this morning coming to church and you're in the driveway and you're about to pull out and then one of the kids or the spouse says, oh, I've got to go in and get something. And it's going to make you late for church, right? How do you handle those kinds of mini trials? Now, impatience shows up in marriage in a number of ways. I only have time to mention two of them. The first is by an unwillingness to work any longer on the relationship. You know, marriage is a very hard thing to get out of without sinning. Relationships take effort, but impatient people are too quick to throw the towel in on friendships and even family relationships that are too difficult. So let me invite you into the counseling office. Someone says to me, Lou, you know, I, I really tried it God's way and it didn't work. And I'll say, well, okay. And I said to myself, well, it should have worked if you really did it God's way long enough. What'd you do? Oh, I did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Okay, that's good, but what else you do? Oh, I did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I thought you said you did it God's way. I did, Lou, I did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I said, well, look, that's good, but like, what about H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P, huh? Yeah, that's God's way too. And usually it involves people trying to put off their sin without replacing it with their, the biblical alternative. Usually it involves them, in this case, trying to um, stop their impatience without really making it their goal to be patient, to just stop being proud without clothing themselves with humility. But every once in a while, someone will come in and... Uh, They'll say, I tried it God's way and it didn't work. Okay, what'd you do? I did A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Wait a minute. You did A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, and it didn't work? That's right. Well, how long did you do it for? Oh, at least a week and a half, maybe two months. At which point I open up the Bible to Hebrews 5 and I say, look, it says you have need of endurance. And by the way, it's the difference between the word endurance and patience. Basically, you endure trials, but you're patient with people. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, not for a week or two or a month or two, but after you've done the will of God for as long as it takes, you will receive the promise. And check it out, but usually the word patience or endurance in the Bible is found somewhere in the context of trial. 
People say in counseling, how long? How long must I put up with her nagging or disrespect or his laziness? That's the tell that you're dealing with someone who's impatient most of the time. The second important attitude that shows up in marriage is one that unduly pressures or demands that a loved one change according to one's own subjective schedule. As I sometimes tell them, look, if the Lord were to show you all of the sins that you've got to correct between now and the time that he comes and said, you've got like a week and a half to get it right, how would you feel? I mean, God is patient with us. First thing in the list, right? First Corinthians 13, love is patient. Last thing, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The Holy Spirit has his own sanctification agenda for each of us. And that agenda is almost certainly different for our loved ones than we might like to think. Superimposing our agenda for another person's uh, uh, sanctification over that of the Holy Spirit is not only a manifestation of impatience, but it's really the epitome of arrogance. We live in a culture of instant food, instant entertainment, instant messaging and other forms of communication, now even instant banking. There's no such thing as instant spiritual maturity. Listen to this quote from Richard Baxter giving advice to husbands. And this will transition from the third quality, patience, to the fourth quality, quality uh, tolerance, loving forbearance. He says, remember still that you are both diseased persons full of infirmities, and therefore expect the fruit of those infirmities in each other. And make not a strange matter of it if you had, as if you had never known it before. If you had married someone that is lame, would you be angry at her for limping? Or if you had married one that had a putrid ulcer, would you fall out with her because it stinketh? Did you not know beforehand that you married a person of such weakness as would yield you some manner of daily trial and offense? If you could not bear this, you shouldn't have married her. If you resolve that you could bear it then, you're obligated to bear it now. Resolve, therefore, to bear with one another as remembering that you took one another as sinful, frail, imperfect persons, not as angels or as blameless and perfect. Last quality, forbearance. If forbearance is the quality that we have to put on, what's the, what's the show-stopping flaw that shows up in our relationships? Intolerance, okay? The word literally means to put up with. We have to put up with stuff as Christians. The word forbearance doesn't appear by itself. It's qualified by the word love. So it's really loving forbearance. And loving forbearance is what this quality is all about. Love by nature is forbearing because it covers a multitude of sins. So I'm going to give you a few definitions of tolerance to take home with you and unpack at home. First, tolerance is the ability to recognize and appreciate the fact that God has made each person different. Paul asked the Corinthians, who makes you to differ from another? And the expected reply is, well, God does. 
The Lord has given us all different abilities, different skills, ministries, backgrounds, tastes, skin colors, genders, and even body shapes. Forbearance recognized and accepts the fact that different is a good thing. And perhaps nothing draws this to a head more than marriage. Oliver grew up on a farm in the country over 40 miles from the thriving metropolis where his wife, Lisa, was raised. So let's contextualize. Okay, Lisa was born in Buckhead, and Oliver is like, sort of like Green Acres. Remember Lisa and Oliver? And Oliver, like, is a Coweta cowboy or something. Okay. His father raised pigs and chickens and came to town twice a month only for the purpose of getting supplies. Her father was a big city lawyer who entertained people in his home regularly. Oliver's family was accustomed to going to bed at 9 o'clock. Lisa, because they would routine, routinely entertain people, they would typically go to sleep at 11. Is it a sin to go to sleep at 9 o'clock? Is it a sin to go to sleep at 11? No. He did the chores on the farm every day. She had a maid and was required to do little more than make her bed and keep her clothes off the bedroom Floor. Oliver's family had to make do with little. They bought their clothes at Walmart, drove late models F-180s, hardly ever took a vacation, reupholstered the furniture every five years. Now, in Lisa's family, they bought their clothes at Brooks Brothers, at Neiman Marcus, and actually every year, they would take two rooms in the house, they'd pull out the furniture, give it to someone in the church who needed it, and they'd go out and buy furniture for those two rooms. Is it a sin if you have the money to do something like that? No. Is it a sin, like, to reupholster your furniture? No. But they're going to have conflicts because they're different. Oliver loved sports. He was on the varsity football, basketball, baseball teams at the local public high school. Lisa went to prestigious private schools and had no interest in sports but loved the arts. She loved to dance and go to theater and the symphony. He loved to go to movies and rodeos and tractor pulls. By the way, any similarity between Oliver and any Christ Covenant former staff members purely coincidental. <clears throat> He loved country music. She spoke five languages. He spoke Baba. Suffice it to say that they came from two very different backgrounds. But what time would they go to bed in the evening? Where would they purchase their clothing? What kind of car would they buy? Where would they go on a date? These are the issues that Oliver and Lisa are going to have, not because one of them is more of a sinner than the other, but because they're different. And forbearing person recognizes that God made us differently. Second, tolerance is a willingness to allow others the freedom to develop and express their own unique lifestyles within the framework of Scripture. We've got all kinds of people at Christ's covenant. We've got some more traditional Christians like me. We've got a lot of yuppies and younger Christians with different kinds of, of, of thoughts and ideas. But as long as we're all within the context of this book, in other words, we're, not, we're not sinning, then we should be forbearing with each other. Okay, I'm going to drop a bomb on some of you. I'm a New York Yankee fan. 
Is it a sin to be a Yankee fan? Amen. But, you know, if you think it's a sin, then you're going to have a hard time being forbearing with Yankee fans. We have tremendous freedom as Christians to live our lives with great diversity. There are a wide array of behaviors, customs, activities in which we're free to participate. As with Oliver and Lisa, some live modest lifestyles. Some live wealthy lifestyles. It's not a sin to do either, not necessarily a sin, right? The point is, if the Bible doesn't condemn a lifestyle of another person, we shouldn't either. Third definition, tolerance is the ability to distinguish swing issues from fire issues. I'll explain this in a moment. So when my youngest daughter was a toddler, my in-laws gave us uh, a toddler's swing for her. It's like a bucket. It's got this harness that comes down and locks the child in. And she used to love to play on the swing. Well, let's suppose we would go out after church to a family's house, and they invite us over for dinner, and we had dinner. And as we, we drive into the driveway, Sophie spots this swing set. And she says, Daddy, can I swing on the swing? I'm not thinking. And I say, sure, sure, we'll sing. Let's go eat first, spend time with our company, with our friends, and then we'll swing you for a few minutes. So we eat dinner, we fellowship, and then all of a sudden, Gabby, Sophie says to me, Daddy, how about the swings? Oh, oh yeah, okay. So we go out to the swing set, and I notice it doesn't have a toddler seat. And I think, oh, it's not the right kind of swing. So I say, honey, look, um, this is not the right kind of swing set. We'll be leaving in about... 30 minutes, I'll take you swinging on your swing set when we get home. But daddy, you promised me. I've been waiting for an hour and a half. And besides, daddy, if you stood next to me, I wouldn't fall. And even if I slipped, you'd catch me. And I think to myself, you know, she's right. It's that important to her. It's not a sin for her to swing on a swing without it. All right, honey, if it means that much to you, we'll, I'll swing with it, all right? So a swing issue is an issue that means one can go both ways on a matter. I may prefer to go in one direction. The person with whom I'm in conflict may prefer to go another direction. But because I'm a forbearing person, I will swing with it. If it means that much to you, I'm willing to yield my personal desires to yours in order to prefer you in honor and pursue peace. A fire issue... On the other hand, well, let me set it up for you. Okay, so it's the next day, and we're having company, uh, you know, we're, ha we're having a bonfire, and so I'm lighting fire, and everything's going, and my daughter comes up to me, toddler, and says, Daddy, can I play in the fire? And I said, what? She says, I want to play in the fire. No, honey, you can't play in the fire, but Daddy, it's so pretty, and it's making those funny noises, and all those sparks are coming up. Can I please play in the fire? Absolutely not. That's the idea. A, f a fire issue is an issue that although it's not necessarily a sin, would be very difficult for me to agree to do. Perhaps it's a matter of personal preference or taste or enjoyment, but for whatever reason, I find the matter objectionable. It's not that I would refuse to do it if I absolutely had to, but I really would rather not. And then finally, tolerance is the ability to put up with Remember, that's what the word means. Those idiosyncratic swing issues that you wish were different in another and to sacrifice your own desires for that 
persons benefit. Romans 15.1, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just to please ourselves. One of the things that God calls us to put up with, to forbear, is the idiosyncrasies of others. Part of God's design and part of the consequences of the fall is that we each have our own set of peculiarities, quirks, foibles. These oddities sometimes prove to be irksome for our fellow sinners whose peculiarities don't exactly match with ours. A forbearing individual understands that for many things in life, there's more than one way to skin a catfish. Or ladies, if you don't like that analogy, there's more than one way to ice a cake. You can start at the top, you can start on the side, you can start at the bottom. More than one way, there's more than one way to do things biblically. But a forbearing person understands, you know, my way of doing things is not necessarily the only biblical or best way to do it. But if you're not forbearing, it's going to be my way or the highway. Well, how about you? What is it that most often keeps you from resolving conflicts quickly, effectively, and with a minimal amount of sin? Is it pride? Is it sinful anger? Is it impatience? Or is it intolerance? Let's pray. Father, we can't look at a passage like this without recognizing that our total inability to do this by ourselves. These things are, humanly speaking, impossible. And so, Lord, we must depend on the grace of God, fellowship, Holy Spirit, Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit. So day by day, little by little, put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and put on the new man who's created in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. And all God's people said...